morning and welcome to Kesset. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, I want to just, before I go any further, I want to say that was just really special worship that we got to uh, experience together. You guys, you nine o'clockers, you're, 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 you're trying to push those 11 o'clockers out for energy. I don't know what's happening, but keep it up. Maybe there'll be a prize at the end. Um, my name's Danny, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for being here. Uh, you're in a place right now that is really, really transforming into uh, something really special. Kesed uh, is supposed to be a place for people who are spiritually curious. We're supposed to be a, a house of conversation. These are all kind of words we've been speaking into our community for about a year or so, and uh, that has been happening more in the last few months than than uh, I have ever seen before in the last 12 years that our, our little church has existed. Uh, so many new faces, so many people who just feel like they don't fit in the kingdom of God have, have told me they, uh, they feel like they have found a space where they can ask questions, where they can sit in some of the tensions of their faith, and where they can also hold firm to the things God says and that have been spoken over their lives. So I just want to make sure and affirm that, that if you're on a journey with the Lord, if you're wrestling with whether there even is a God, if you're just here because someone beautiful invited you and you just figured you'd earn some points, you are welcome. We will, we will take you however you are and uh, wherever you're at in your journey. Uh, we're in a series right now that's kind of speaking to that called Where the Girls Are. And uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't taken a minute, go back and listen to last week because it does a better intro than I'm going to do right now. But the series is all about uh, kind of this idea that there are a lot of myths and misconceptions that we as Christians have, have thought the Bible taught us about women. And many of those have become tradition. And then become, because they were tradition for so long, they eventually uh, became scripture to us, scripture that that nobody was allowed to be curious about, scripture that nobody was allowed to really look at and, 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 and kind of soak in context. And so that's what this series is about, is how do, we, how, do, how do we as a community look at women? How do we look at the Bible and how it looks at women? And how do we, uh, how do we ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to do with that today? And uh, so we did an intro last week, and this week, uh, the natural thing for me in building the series was to, was to present to you a woman's perspective and a woman's voice around this issue, because uh, although I am a pastor here and I'm part of the leadership, uh, I'm not a woman. I don't live this day in and day out, and it's really, really important to, uh, to hear this perspective from that point of view. And so today, I've asked a special friend of mine, Brenna Blaine, to come and share with you guys. And uh, Brenna is a local voice from here that, uh, that has grown up in church and has experienced and seen a lot of this. And I thought her perspective was just so beautiful. She shared with us Thursday. It was awesome. Uh, I learned a lot. And I'm excited for you to hear from her today. So would you please just give a warm, kessed welcome to Brenna. Um, it, it really is an honor to be your guys' uh, open-handed issue today. I'm really excited about that. Before we get into what we're going to be talking about, I'd love to just tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, there's a picture of us up here. I've been married this fall. It'll be four years to my husband, Austin. And then we have our toddler, Rudy. Rudy. He'll be three in the fall. So if you do the math, you can figure out that our first year of marriage was really exciting. Um, a fun fact about Rudy is that when he turned to the month he turned to, he quit napping. And so people will say, how are you? My answer is always, I'm, I'm tired. 
but thank you for asking. Um, and then something else, maybe, maybe you can tell, maybe you can't, but I'm due with our second in about five weeks here, maybe four. We'll see. I'm hoping for four. Thanks. Very little effort on my part, but... Um, so uh, I'm on Facebook, and one of my favorite things about Facebook is Facebook groups. Any of you guys uh, involved in a Facebook group of any kind? Show, show of hands. So I'm in like three different Christian Facebook groups. Something that's really interesting about them is I don't really know anyone personally who's in these groups. And um, over the past few months, there's been this reoccurring cartoon that showed up a few different times. And uh, the first time I saw it, put it up there, it's, um, I, it looked kind of vintage. So I was like, I'm not going to read this. So I like scrolled past it. And then the second time I saw it, I was like, what is up with this cartoon? Why does it keep popping up? And the person who had posted it the second time had a caption. And it was something along the lines of like, we can't judge people who don't look like us. And if you look at the cartoon, it's like a guy, and there's people around him, and they're in church, and he's making, uh, they're making some passing judgments about him. And, and, and the funny thing is, I don't know if you've gotten a good look at me, but I identify much more with the man in the middle than anyone else in the picture. I have uh, quite a few tattoos. I'm pretty tall. And if you ask my family or my friends, the only thing I've ever collected in my life is black t-shirts with skulls on them. So I, I, I started just, I just laughed when I looked at this. And last week, Danny introduced this series that talks about myths and misconceptions that we think the Bible teaches us about women. And one thing that not only I've dealt with and seen in many other women's lives who wrestle with being in ministry, but something that a lot of women who just are in places of faith deal with is the validity of our stories, our testimonies, and sharing our, our knowledge and truth about Jesus. You know, I've heard questions asked like, does my story matter? Or is it most honoring to God if I as a woman remain silent in these spaces? Um, I've heard of women who have excellent educations, uh, bachelor's, master's, doctorates in, in things like theology, divinity, biblical studies, walking into places and offering up their gifts, saying, this is what I'm gifted in, and, and being turned away. And, and the sad thing is that they've been displaced in places of faith. But I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that this is not just an issue that's central to women. And I know that this cartoon example is a, is a more shallow example because it's a, about appearance. But I started to think about how many people, men and women, really question or even come to the conclusion that their life is not compatible with Christianity. For me, it took place when I was young. I had been abused and I was uh, severely mentally ill. I, I was deeply suicidal and at age 14, I had a lot of other big questions and difficulties in my life. And I looked at the faith communities around me and I came to the conclusion 
that my life really was not compatible with Christianity because of what I saw reflected by people. And so maybe some of you are sitting here right now and you're feeling that way. Even the fact that you're in a church building, maybe someone invited you and you came out of obligation or you're watching online and you just happen to find this link and you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's my life because my sins are too deep or I, I just live a lifestyle that does not work with Christianity And if that's not you, the likelihood that you are walking with someone who believes that and you've been praying for them and pursuing them and seeking them out and just saying, God, would you just make it clear that this isn't true? We all know people like this. And so I want to tell you that today you are in good company. We are looking at the interaction that Jesus had with a woman who was nameless to us, but she's famously known as the woman at the well. And if there is anyone who should feel displaced and incompatible with the surrounding faith communities, it is this woman. So we're going to read John 4, starting at verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us these things. And then Jesus said to her, which I love because it's the most Yoda-like thing Jesus has ever said, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Let me say that again. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, I'm a big believer that there is so much beauty in the narratives that we find in the Bible, but I also fully believe that in order to receive the complete depth and knowledge and understanding God is hoping to impart to us through his word, we have to be willing to dive into the layers of context behind each narrative and what's going on culturally, socially at the time, and in that region. And so um, I have a friend, her name is Lindsay Ponder. She actually works at the Bible Project. She's getting her master's at Western Seminary, so she helped me with this study So if you learn anything today, don't think me, think Lindsay. Uh, But the context of this is that Jesus is leaving the south of Israel, and he's headed north for Galilee. 
And in between those two points lies this town called Samaria, which is a problem. You see, um, Samaria used to be, or Samaritans used to be a part of the children of God. They were Jewish by descent. But during Assyrian exile, which you can read about in both books of Chronicles as well as 2 Kings, Samaritans started to marry Gentiles, which went against the belief of the Jews. And through that, they became a people who were seen as unclean. And so along with this significant compromise in their faith, Samaritans also started to absorb and practice pagan religions with some of their Jewish practices. So when Jewish people looked at Samaritans, they saw a disgraced, unclean people of compromise who walked away from the real God just to live a life of self-pleasure. So when, when Jews made this trek from Israel to Galilee, you can imagine that their feelings for these people, for the Samaritans, were on their mind. Just like any time you have to make a long drive and there's a part of that drive that you hate, as soon as you get in that car, you start thinking about it. And scholars say maybe even uh, some Jewish people would make the effort to go all the way around Samaria, which is a, a big deal when you're traveling on foot just to avoid contact with the Samaritan. So by this point in the, in the narrative, it's noon, when Jesus is talking with this woman. And customarily, women would go to the wells either at the start of the day or at the end of the day to avoid the heat because the middle of the day was the hottest part of the day. So we know that when Jesus is not the only person at this well, that something is going on. Because this woman is willing to put up with the heat to carry gallons and gallons of water because it was enough water to cook, to clean, to drink for the day. Maybe not even just one day, but a few days. It wasn't just a, a bucket of water. It was a lot. Just to avoid social interaction. But why? The other thing that we need to take note of is that this is no coincidence Okay, so Jesus, being all-knowing, shows up at the well with a purpose. And maybe you're saying, well, how do we know this? And aside from Jesus being all-knowing, there are much more deep implications to this interaction than just the animosity that exists between Jews and Samaritans because not only is this individual a Samaritan, she's also a woman. And at this time, Jewish teachers, rabbis, which Jesus was, they would not normally speak to women, not even devout Jews, and hardly ever even their own wives. And so when Jesus sees that this person at the well is, one, a Samaritan, and two, a, a woman, and he doesn't turn around and walk the other way, he is making a statement. He's saying something significant in his actions. He is actually confronting racial and gender stereotypes of the time and the culture and the Jewish religion. And he says, not with me. Not with me. These things that matter to other people, to religious zealots and leaders, these things that have been taught and learned and adapted and held up, 
I, Jesus, undo them. I break down these walls. And so the name of this talk today and the main point is Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything when he enters our lives. But we have to ask, how? How does he do this? Where we picked up in our reading is a really interesting place of tension. Because Jesus, who is a complete stranger, dares to bring up uh, a point of pain and of sin and of struggle in this woman's life. You see, the woman, if you grew up in church, you've heard this story many, many times. You know that she has had many marriages. But another point of context that we need to know is that women, Jewish women, could not divorce. And even though she was a Samaritan, this would be a law that they would still uphold. And so you have to say, what's going on here? How has she been divorced this many times? And you see, the sin that this woman was in was the fact that she kept going back to the same things, expecting different results, saying, I think it will work now. I think this is where I'll find my worth. I think this is where I should be. But the struggle that this woman was in was the false hope that each relationship promised her. That each man who probably was much more than well aware of her past came into her life and falsely said, oh yeah, I'll treat you different. And then discarded her when they got what they wanted or when they didn't get what they wanted. Verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have right now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And we have to ask the question, how is this confrontation part of Jesus changing everything? And it's that Jesus names our sin and our struggles. When Jesus enters our lives, he names our sin and our struggles. He says, I see a pattern of sin and struggle and hopelessness and destruction, a pattern that is leading you to agony and pain and shame and guilt, and eventually, if you do not turn away from this life, it will lead you to death. And he has the right to do this. Because he is the author and perfecter of all goodness and light who has died for our sins. But we need to be careful because some of us hear this and we go, oh yeah, me too. Jesus was a really good example, so I also call people out on their sin and struggle and it's just what's loving. But so often we miss the way that Christ operates. We say he does it. So I, I'll do it too, but we miss the how. We miss the how. In verses 7 through 15, which we didn't read, but it's earlier, it's right when Jesus starts this interaction with this woman. And, and they're talking about water because they're at this well. And Jesus alludes to a hope that this woman has never known, never tasted, never seen. Living water. He says she has the opportunity to partake in this living water so that she would never thirst again. Notice that he does this before he calls out her sin and struggle. Jesus sees her in all of her humanity and all of her brokenness and extends an invitation of hope 
with grace and kindness and deep gentleness. And he points her towards a future that she never knew was possible for her. I remember in my own life, uh, when I was young, just in my early 20s, it's funny because I'm not that old now, but when I was young, I, I had a job as a youth pastor. And during that time, it was very short, uh, six months, and I was, I was struggling deeply with mental illness. And it got to the point where I became very suicidal, and so I, I ended up being checked into the hospital on suicide watch. And I remember sitting in that hospital just thinking, I'm so ashamed that I have to go back to my church, and that I have to have a meeting with the pastors that oversaw my job. And so I, a few weeks went by, and I went, I had this meeting, and the pastor that I met with, many of you probably know him. He's a deeply kind person. He sat across from me. He said, Brennan, we're putting you on medical leave so you can take a month off, but we hope and pray you come back. And I, I kind of asked, well, why? Doesn't this disqualify me from ministry? Doesn't this disqualify me from leadership? And he said, no. Your struggles don't dictate the calling and the gifting that God placed in your life. And John was just a small reflection of Jesus and his heart. You see, Jesus does this. He says, this is available to you. These old things, your past, your struggles, or your sin, they don't dictate the future that I have for you, but you have to make the choice to step into new life that I am offering in order to take Living water, you have to decide to stop taking up water that will leave you thirsty again. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, and God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I want you to notice the language in that. The Father is seeking such people to worship him in spirit and truth. You see, many of the Jews that this woman knew, that this woman came into contact with, were all about laws, 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 laws. The way that you live your life dictates your holiness. And Christ calls to her and says, I want you to worship me in spirit and truth. I want you to fall in love with me, to love me radically, but to also obey me radically, to have intimacy and theology, honesty and earnestness abiding in Christ and laying it all down. His new life we are led to by him because of him, but we are also called to surrender, to drop our luggage, to be willing to pick up our cross and walk that narrow path. He says, love me with your heart and your actions will follow. Jesus changes everything by calling out our sin and struggle and by calling us out of an old life into a new life. And after I had this conversation with John, I remember 
just the wheels starting to spin in my head and realizing that it wasn't out of obligation, but it was the fact that I'd, I was given a glimpse of, of the beauty of God's gracious heart, of God's kind heart. And that's when I started to say, what can I do for you, God? What are you calling me to do? How can I step into this new life that you have for me? You see, loving is a response out of being met in love. Trust is a response out of being met in love. This woman, had she been met with being called out first, I I don't know that she would have stuck around to hear about the living water that Jesus offers. But Jesus, in his wisdom and tenderness, knows to approach her first with gentleness and then with truth. He doesn't withhold one or the other, but he's also not a jerk. Loving is a response out of being met in love. So the woman is standing there, I imagine, overwhelmed by the person of Christ, who proved to her first in action his love by simply interacting with her, choosing not to walk away. Then through word, by offering the hope of salvation through living water that she may never thirst again. And then, through the opportunity of repentance and redemption, by telling her God is seeking those who are willing to worship in spirit and truth through their lives. And what happens next is interesting because the disciples show up, a group of men, And they know, and she knows, this interaction should not be happening. But no one says anything. And then the disciples who so often miss the significance of things, I think miss the significance of this. In fact, verses 31 through 38 is this really awkward interaction that they're having with Jesus. Because they're saying, hey, you need to eat. It's been a while. And he says, I've already eaten. And they go, we we didn't bring you food. And he's saying, you know, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. God provides for me. And while we're on the subject, there is a harvest that is ready for reaping. People who are thirsty, who are hungry for something that needs to fulfill them. And meanwhile, the woman whether she knows it or not, goes into the town of Samaria that holds so many other Samaritans who have stories just like hers, who are thirsting for hope and for truth, who are ripe for harvest, and whether she knows it or not, she starts reaping by telling people about the man that she met in the middle of the day, a Jewish man named Jesus. Many Samaritans, verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. We need to take note of this as well. Because 45 minutes to a few hours before, earlier, this woman is making this trek to the well in the middle of the day, alone, in the heat, to avoid other women from her town. Because she lives in a place out of shame and fear of other people 
of her own story. And not hours later is she back in this town and she's not ashamed. She's not hiding anymore. She's not avoiding anymore. She's not living out of guilt because she has met the one who says, you don't have to live this way anymore because I give you new life. She owns her testimony. She literally goes into the town and says, let me tell you about this man who knows about all of my marriages. She owns her testimony because her security is now in Christ. No one can tell her you're dirty and useless and unseen anymore. And what happens when she does that? The people who obviously know her story, who've seen her live this life of struggle and sin, the people that have treated her poorly, notice. The people say, wait a second. This lady who's been avoiding us, who, who we've talked down to, there's something different about her. Verse 40 says, So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed two more days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Because of this woman's testimony, the Samaritans who had very little interaction with, with Jews, yet alone positive interactions with Jews. Ask a Jewish rabbi to stay with them, to talk with them, and he stays. Because her truth leads them to hear the truth. I love the end of that verse. This is, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Her truth leads them to the truth, and they become Children of God, followers of Christ, people who have seen a great light. All because Christ allowed this woman, who otherwise had no real part in society, no worth, no value, and certainly no right to tell others about Jesus, to do just that. You see, Jesus changes everything by taking the most disqualified people and he sends us out. Even the most unlikely, the most broken, the most socially unacceptable, the ones who God's chosen people would have deemed unclean because of her ethnicity and unfit because of her gender, Jesus allows and uses to reap a harvest of many people who thirst for living water, and, she, and, and Jesus is seeking us out, inviting us into his presence to know and to love and experience him, and he's saying, I want to send you, because you have a unique story that will reap a harvest of people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting. You see, in my own life, I realized that I could not stay quiet about my mental illness and my experiences with that because there are those who wrestle with the same things, who just need to hear that someone who looks like them, 
or who sounds like them, someone who has been in the same boat, has been met with radical hope. So the woman at the well is not just a story for other women, but it's a story for all of us that we would know that Christ meets us where we are at, in the condition that we are in. He listens to our needs and then offers us hope that no one else can. And when we accept that, he calls us worthy and he says, tell the world about me and what I've done for you. Jesus changes everything. He, our shame he calls us out of, our hopelessness and loneliness he meets us in, our unfit, unredeemable features and sinful lifestyles. Not only does he call us out of them, but in his sufficient goodness, he turns around and uses that as a tool of communication to those who are swimming in similar waters. Because Jesus changes everything, all lives can be made compatible with Christ. All people who have been displaced can be met by the only one who can offer us a life of spirit and truth. And because Jesus changes everything, he can qualify and send out anyone who's willing to be a living testimony unto his name. I am. Um, I was praying this morning about how I should end today. How I should end my time with you. And I know the reality is that some of you have heard this and you're like, yes, amen, I agree. But then there are those of you who are either, if you're online or if you're in this room, you're like, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. It's not me. I'm, it's My life is... It's, it's not compatible with Christ. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I think about. You don't know the life that I've lived. And I, I asked God this morning, I was like, what do you have? Because I know you have something, but what do you have for these people? And he reminded me of Christ on the cross. And when Christ was being crucified, he was not alone. There were two other men there. And one of the men was mocking him. And the other man, who was a thief, said, Stop, don't you know that this man does not deserve to be here, but we do. He's lived a perfect life, but we haven't. And, and it's so interesting to me that this man wasn't even like, Will you save me? He's just saying, No. He's owning his life. He's owning his lifestyle. He's owning his story. And he's just saying, Not me. Leave this man alone. We deserve this. Him? No. And Jesus looks at him and says, Today, you will be with me. So know that you are never too far out of the reach of God to be with him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word that it is full of stories that reflect our own lives, reflect our own sins, our struggles, and that woven in every single letter and every single word and every single narrative is the hope of you, the hope of Christ, the hope that all people can have, that we are not too far out of your reach. There is not one life that is too far out of reach. God, you have made a way that we 
can have lives that are not only compatible with yours, but that give other people hope that are a reflection of you. So God, I just pray for anyone who is still saying, not me. Would you just give them a glimpse? Would you show them what their life could be like if they were to choose to surrender to you? When you walk into the room, everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble at the light that you bring. And when you walk into the room, every heart starts burning. Nothing matters more than just to sit here at your feet and worship you. We worship you.
sing this. If you know it, please join. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look for in his wonderful face. the lost soul. You're the only one who can change anything. You're the only Savior. Help us to get out of the way. Help us just to be a reflection of you so that you can do your work. Help us fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great day. We'll see you next Sunday. We'll turn.